Today, Stratagos partner and former senior policy advisor to the U.S. Department of Education, Todd Lamb, talks with superintendent of Dallas Independent School District, Michael Hinosa, about his story and the 10th largest school district's response to the pandemic and its reopening. Michael Hinosa, welcome to the program. We are really honored to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. I hope you had a great Labor Day weekend and would love to know how was your weekend? What'd you do? Did you do something interesting? Well, thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. No, actually, my wife and I got a weekend getaway. We went to, down to San Antonio for the weekend and had a good time. And so we just had played some golf and relaxed because the big hall is here. <laughs> That's great. Well, I always love to know how somebody becomes a superintendent. Orlando has heard me in the past talk about how I I look at superintendents the same way I look at football coaches. You don't accidentally become one of those things. There's somebody that sort of leads you down the path. You are, as I recall, a native of Dallas. Isn't that correct? Well, I'm a slight addendum to that. I was actually born in Mexico, in Nuevo Laredo, so I'm an immigrant. But we actually moved to Dallas when I was in in the second grade. So for all intents and purposes, I did grow up in Dallas in a neighborhood called Oak Cliff, very similar to East L.A., And what was it that took you down a path that got you into the superintendent's role? Well, I'll be as brief as I can, but it's a long story (laughs) because it happened a long time ago. So I went to Dallas Public Schools from second grade to graduation, and then I was aimlessly walking the halls of Sunset High School when a teacher asked me to apply for a scholarship for Future Teachers of America. So I went to Texas Tech. My father said that when he brought us to this country, we were all going to get an education. So Eight of the 10 of us graduated from high school, but then also my parents have had 22 grandchildren, and out of the 22 grandchildren, two are special needs, so they didn't graduate from college. 16 graduated from college, and the other four went to college, and my two boys went to Harvard and Princeton. So it was my parents that showed us the value in education. So after I went to Texas Tech, I came right back, and I taught in Dallas. I was a teacher a government teacher and a coach. I was the youngest head basketball coach in the history of Dallas. I also coached baseball and football. And after eight years, people kept pushing me into administration and I was reluctant. But I applied for an assistant principal's job in Dallas and I couldn't even get an interview. So I was relieved because all I ever wanted to do was coach. (laughs) But then people pushed me to the suburbs and said, well, what about the suburbs? And I was a young man. I was less than 30 years old. And I got hired in a suburb of Grand Prairie. And I went from assistant principal to assistant superintendent in seven years. So now I'm 30 something years old. And I get the itch to be a superintendent. Well, I go have to go 650 miles to El Paso County to a district of 2000 students to get my first superintendency. I went 650 miles and I was still in Texas. And so I was superintendent there. Then I was the regional service center director. Then I got a suburban job in Austin area. Then I got a suburban job as superintendent, both of those superintendencies in the Houston area. And then finally, in 2005, the Dallas job came open. Some people recruited me for the job before I took the spring job in the Houston area, but I told them I wasn't ready yet. A lot of people had tried to be superintendent in Dallas, and it didn't work out well. We had seven superintendents in 10 years in the 90s, and so it was like a revolving door. And you got to know when you're ready for something and when you're not ready. So I waited until 2005, and so I finally got an interview in Dallas, and I was selected. 
And I stayed here for six years. And those were six pretty good years, mostly good, a few problems, but mostly good. And then my boys were going to the Ivy League. So I decided to retire and I moved to Georgia and I was at Cobb County for three years and I double dipped. I was able to get my pension and get a salary and start paying for that Ivy League education. Whoa, that's a lot of money, brother. Yeah. And then my uh, mom and my mother-in-law were both elderly. So we decided to retire and move back to Dallas in 2014. And I was here for a year. Our paths crossed multiple times during that time. And then the superintendent resigned abruptly. And that was in 2015. And so the board asked me to come back because they were familiar with me. Most of this, about half of the board was the same board that was here when I left. And so they hired me as an interim. And then they said, nope, you got to stay. So I've been back since 2015. So overall, this is my 12th year as superintendent of Dallas, even though it's over uh, two terms. So it's a long-winded story about how it happened, but it was unique. It's not the normal pathway to the superintendency. I have to know, tell me a little bit about dad. Sounds like that was a pretty amazing human being to bring a family to America and live out the dream, truly live out the dream and push you towards education. What, What did he do for a living when he got to Dallas? That's what got him to Dallas. In fact, he was an orphan, so he really focused on family. And so he was a preacher, Assembly of God preacher. No, we're not all Catholic. And so Uh we were in Mexico, and he kept getting churches closer to the United States. And so we were in Tampico, in Ciudad Victoria, and then he got a church in Nuevo Laredo, and that's where I was born. And then he got a church in Lubbock, Texas, and that's what brought us because he knew the value of an education and he was self-taught. He and my mom were both ordained ministers, but they were self-taught. They only went to the third grade in Mexico. And so he really stressed that on us. He was very passionate about it, very passionate about his church work, but also about education. And that's what rubbed off on me. You know, my dad was an orphan as well. And I always noticed only later in life did I notice how happy he was when we would go to a grocery store. I think an orphan at a grocery store is like Disneyland for like a lot of normally raised kids who have parents. Food for him was such a vital aspect, and that's why I spent the whole Labor Day weekend cooking because I took the, those traits from my dad as well. So, Michael, let me ask you, where is Dallas now in the COVID virus situation? Are you blended? Are you fully virtual? Where are you in relationship to student activity? Well, thanks for asking because today is our first day of school. So this is like my 40th year as the first day of school. Today was like no other because it's 100% virtual as of today. We were supposed to start on August 17th, but I recommended to the board because Texas became a hot spot in Dallas County in particular that we delay the opening until the day after Labor Day. And so we've opened today, but it's 100% virtual. And I, as the superintendent, have the authority for the first four weeks to stay virtual. However, things are improving significantly in Dallas County. I mean, we were having like a thousand new cases a day back when I made the decision to delay the start. Now we're less than a hundred new cases a day. And so we do have a plan to eventually go a hybrid approach. Actually, parents have the choice. They can do either in school or at home and they can go back and forth 
But right now, it's 100% virtual. We think that on October the 8th, October the 5th, then families that want to come into buildings can start coming into buildings. And we may even actually beta test that a week early. Last Monday in September, we're planning on bringing back special needs students, early childhood students, maybe even our sixth graders and our ninth graders so they can get acclimated to their new schools. That's kind of where we're in. We're in a state of flux. If you'd asked me this question two weeks ago, you got a different answer. But that's what's happening. You know, as much experience as I have as a superintendent of 27 years, this is like nothing else because the data keeps changing almost not even on a weekly basis, almost on a daily basis, right. and sometimes even on an hourly basis. And so you have to be able to pivot. I once ran a campaign. I had three months to put everything together, and I had a teacher's union political director who was helping me, and he kept saying, flexibility is far too rigid a word for this style of operation. It sounds like flexibility is the key for you guys right now. Two words, flexibility and pivoting. Yep. Both of those two are huge. So tell me about Operation Connectivity. So much has been made of the digital divide for years, but never more so now as we really focus in on the have and have nots with regards to it's one thing to have a computer, but if it isn't connected to high-speed internet, it's really just a paperweight. Walk me through Operation Connectivity. Yeah, I had the huge epiphany as this pandemic was starting to roll out that we were very fortunate in Dallas that we already had a long-range technology plan. And we were going to do one-to-one devices for our secondary students. And we had already started purchasing them, but we hadn't deployed them to the students. We were just going to have them at school and every student would have their own device. But right before spring break, we decided, wait a minute, let's let the students take these home because we don't know when we're going to see them again. And we haven't seen them again. Right. So we started deploying the secondary devices. We had in the master plan there for next year, we would then order devices. And by the way, most of those are Chromebooks, all those for our P-Tech students, which require a higher level of uh, computing. We actually have some PCs for them. And then we were going to do uh, Chromebooks for third grade through fifth grade, but we weren't going to implement those until this year. But we decided to move that, accelerate that up and start buying those. And then we also decided we were going to have Kindles for our primary kids, but we decided, no, maybe a Kindle's not good enough. So we were going to go to full-fledged tablets and we ended up giving that award to Apple. And so now we're going to go 100% devices for all of our students. Our elementary students are just now getting them. But as we were going along the way, one of the things that we discovered was that as we started deploying these is that we had 36,000 households that did not have broadband access to the internet. So I took on the initiative, even though I have no authority, I do have a bully pulpit, Right. That we were going to make this a high priority locally for Dallas. And so we started our own version. And I studied way back in the 90s, the Harvard Business Journal, there was an article about why transformations fail. The biggest point is that there's not a big enough guiding coalition. So what we decided to do is bring in our local school districts, our local chambers and businesses, our local providers, and our local governments and we all jumped in in this journey together. The state paid attention. They noticed this was going on. The governor appointed myself and the commissioner of education to the Operation Connectivity Task Force. 
because it's the same issue for the state of Texas. Their issue is bigger because they don't have devices and they don't necessarily have infrastructure. In Dallas, we're fortunate that we have a lot of infrastructure and we have devices. We just didn't have the connectivity inside the front door. In the meantime, Congress is taking this on. I was with Eddie Bernice Johnson this morning. She's the chairperson of the House Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math Committee because we named a school after her and we walked to school this morning. And similarly, the feds had started something and that version passed her committee, passed the House, but is now stalled in the Senate. And there's at least five different bills for Operation Connectivity is how we fund this thing at a federal level. Right. So regardless, that's kind of what we're working on. We have a vision that by January 1, 2021, our version of it will be connected. And that's because we'll either use our own personal resources, our fund balance, our savings account, or we're going for a $3.7 billion bond, or we're going to wait on federal dollars. But either way, we're going to get it done by January. Everybody else is going to be lagging behind us so that we could get that connectivity to those 37,000 households. How did you come up with the number? Did you do a poll of parents around the district and that's how you came up with 37,000? Or was there some other way to determine that number? Well, when we started giving out the devices to the students, the very first question we asked was, how can you have access? Many of them didn't have access, so we deployed 20,000 hotspots. Now, some hotspots have multiple students in the household, and we have another 10,000 that we're deploying now. So we asked that question early on, so that's how we found out. And then also, in addition, there's been a study by the Fed the Federal Reserve Bank. And they had also done this work in the community and many communities, and they'd help identify it. So we triangulated the information that we had and they had, and we figured out what the delta was. Do you feel like the way you've been able to assemble a coalition of parents, teachers, community, businesses, do you think that this is an opportunity to sort of restart education as a community exercise in a way that maybe you couldn't do before? What I'm trying to get at, Michael, is do you think in some way, some crazy way, this all gets better because of COVID, because we're reimagining education and the community's role in it? No doubt about it, Todd. We're the last industry to change. You know, if you go back 100 years, we had the Carnegie unit, we had the seven period day, we had this, that and the other, and very little has changed. We don't want to be the taxi cab. We want to be the Uber. Never waste a good crisis. If we don't take advantage of this crisis and make something good out of it, then shame on us. But we have rules like seat time that have to be studied. We have a lot of things that are going to have to change. But we don't have a choice. And I think this is a great opportunity for our industry to reinvent itself. And this is coming strange from a person who has almost 30 years as a superintendent uh, of the current estate. But I argue, look, I grew up in Oak Cliff and I wasn't near the smartest guy, but I had agency and I had grit and I had resilience. I wasn't near as smart as people in my family or in my community. But education worked for me, and that's the problem with education. The reason we have the system we have now, for you and I and policymakers and decision makers, this system was good for them in high school. But look how many students it didn't work for in high school. So we have to look at something different, and here's a great chance to try to do something. I love it. And I have to ask you, I'm a huge sports fan. Sounds like you had quite a career playing and coaching. Is Texas playing football right now, high school football? I know it's such a big deal in your state. 
Well, in Texas, there's two sports, football and spring football. And so <laughs> the short answer is yes and no. Some of the smaller communities are already playing. Today is the first day that our high school students in Dallas, because we're so urban and we're in the in a hot spot, is the first day they can start strength and conditioning. So we're in a district with some small schools that are in the same district with some rural and suburban small schools. And our kids are going to be playing their first game when these other schools have played four or five games. And so it is really crazy that how it's evolving. But we're just starting our strength and conditioning and our students will be ready in a few weeks to start actually playing. I know you're a baseball fan and I have to say I'm enjoying watching baseball, but it really is strange to watch it without fans. How are you accepting the new reality of fanless baseball right now? Well, I'm actually depressed a little bit because I was a former baseball coach, a travel coach. Baseball has been a big part of my life. I coach all three of my boys in high-level travel baseball from Utah to Florida to California. And now I'm having kind of withdrawals. I have season tickets to the Rangers game. And thank goodness they're not allowing any fans because they're not very good. (laughs) It would be very very awful to be there in person. And they have a brand-new stadium. But no, it's been surreal. I do watch the games a little bit, but it is different without the fans. And I've lost a little bit of interest because the Rangers are so bad. It is just strange to see it, but at least they're getting to play. I think what the NBA did was very special about at least giving us something to be connected to. Right. Sports and extracurricular activities. And the NBA is already moving towards their championship. Baseball is going to be real interesting how they finish it out this year. But businesses tell us all the time they want kids that can work in teams, that can get along with others, that give up their own goals. That's what sports does. And that's why in Dallas we had this goal that every student was involved in an extracurricular activity. It was amazing when we had that goal. Not only did our music programs improve, our sports programs improve, but so did robotics and so did chess a lot of different things. And a lot of those things have been put on hold. We even started a gaming program for our students that are into the gaming situations. But all of that has kind of been put on hold because of this pandemic. So our whole world has changed, even though we know that we need students connected to something positive. I totally agree. Michael, one other question that comes to mind, everybody I talk to around the country both anecdotally through friends and relation, as well as talking to chief academic officers at districts across America, keep coming back to one problem that seems to be common across the country, and that is how do you reach special needs students in a digital environment? My understanding is this is incredibly difficult and there are no easy answers. Is that where you are in Dallas and what are you doing about it? Yeah, Todd, this is probably what my biggest worry, because these students are the furthest behind. Now, there's gradations of special needs. You know, if you have speech disabilities, that's one thing that could probably be handled in this kind of context with not too difficult a problem. But we have medically fragile students where you actually have to have high touch. And actually, our teachers and our nurses, they're scared to death because there is no social distancing when you're dealing with a medically fragile student. And then you have all of the other special needs somewhere in between the autism kids. And I've seen some specials on, you know, national networks about these students with autism and how they're falling further behind. One of the things that we are going to do, we're not doing a whole lot right now. We're actually doing it mostly virtual, but a lot of it is a catch-as-catch-can opportunity with our teachers and our parents. Now, what we are going to do 
as I mentioned earlier, the last week of September, we're going to start bringing those students back first and then trying to connect them with the students and the parents that feel the most comfortable. And we've already recruited our highly courageous teachers that are willing to go first. And they've already signed up and says, no, we need to be with our students. And so we've got the people lined up, but actually we won't even get started for a couple of more weeks until we are given permission from health officials. Now we have finally gone from red to orange. So now we can start meeting with some of those families but we have to have the system. So we're just like everybody else in the country. We're worried. We're terrified. And I wish I had a better answer, but that's the one area where I have the biggest concern. And then one other question that kind of comes to mind that I can think of is just bus drivers and cafeteria workers and others, and just how you're handling the cafeteria and lunch system, because you're dealing with an environment that is not socially distanced per se. How would you handle the social distancing that kind of doesn't really fit with? Yeah, let me first talk about uh, food service and cafeteria service. We're very lucky in Dallas. We've always had breakfast in the classroom. So we have systems how we can distance our students and have breakfast in the classroom. And for many of our campuses, as they start coming back, we'll do lunch in the classroom. Although we do have plexiglass dividers. And in some schools that if we have about 50% come back, we'll be able to actually use the cafeteria as long as we socially distance. And it just depends on the volume of students that actually come back when they come back in person. So food service, we have pretty much under control and our workers are are very supportive and they'll be here. Transportation, we have bus drivers available. That's our biggest concern from the operation side is because we were told early on that if you had a mask and you had a face shield, and you had plexiglass, you could get students on a bus up to a certain number. We have about a 60-passenger bus. And if we're doing those things that I just described, we could get about 30 students on a bus. But now they said, nope, never mind. CDC changed their guidelines, and so did the state of Texas, that even if you have a shield and a mask, you still have to socially distance. So now we're down to 14 students on a bus. So that means... That's a third of the students or a fourth of the students that we need. And so what we're asking our parents as they're making a decision to come back, we're encouraging many of them, which many of our parents do not have transportation, is to bring the kids to school themselves because we don't have enough buses. We don't have enough drivers to multiply our service by three or four times. And then, of course, we've got to take temperature. And what happens if a student has a fever? We have a white fleet, which we call our white fleet are our vans that we'll have to pick. They are usually we use for baseball or small sports or tennis or something like that. And with those vans would take those students back home. But the parent has to be there. That's one thing that's really nerve wracking as as we start moving forward. But as we surveyed our parents, only half of them say they want to come back in person. I think as these numbers keep getting better and people are safer, I think those numbers will increase. But then we'll see where the guidelines are on uh, transporting students. But I'm very pleased that today we broke a record in Dallas. We do not have a single bus that's late. And what, wow. That's because we don't have any buses running. We can 100% virtual, but it's not going to be that way when we do have them running. And that's why this is totally different than any other school opening I've ever seen. And you're, somebody, some smart person is going to have to figure out the new bus routes that have probably been in place forever. And now you're going to have to tweak it because the same bus that used to pick up 
60 kids can only take 14. That means a couple different batches of kids are going to have to get picked up by second and third buses. That's not going to be easy to figure out. No, those logistics are huge. And how we have the staggered arrival and, then, you know, you, a traditional educator, you start school at 830. Well, some kids won't be there till 840 or 850 or 910, depending on what we can pull off. And that's why, you know, we're all in this dilemma and this this it'll take care of itself over time. People don't want a whiner. They want a problem solver. And we'll solve this problem. But it's just going to take time and logistics and flexibility to make this happen. Well, if people ever do want a whiner, I have like a hundred in my neighborhood that they could choose from. But that might be for a different topic in a different time. Well, Michael, thank you for sharing your life story. Thank you for telling us what's going on in Dallas. And congratulations on being recognized both in the state of Texas, but also nationally for Operation Connectivity. Thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Todd. Appreciate you guys. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you by Strategos Group. If you'd like to learn more about our guest, Michael Yunosa, and Dallas ISD, you can find them at dallasisd.org. 